Okay, told you it was a nice quick video, but that is the first of three videos that we're going to be showing over a number of weeks. Uh, just to, again to highlight, draw your attention to the half nights of prayer that we're doing as part of relational mission, as Mike said, that family of churches that we belong to. So just want to encourage you to, to come along to that. But it, it links really well into this week's sermon, talking about unity, thinking about what it means to be a people together, uh, not just locally, but globally as well. So I think hopefully if I, if I do what I'm intending to do, we'll see how it links in with what we're doing. And this morning we're carrying on with our series, working our way through the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Uh, we've called it Joy, the message of Philippians. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to Philippians in chapter 2, we're going to be starting at verse 1 of chapter 2. Can anyone tell me what is special about the date February the second. Any ideas? If anyone gets this right, I will buy you a prize. I am that confident. Neil's eyes have widened. February the 2nd. I'll give you a clue. It's an annual event. Every year on the same date, February the 2nd. My brother's birthday. <laughs> Special for all of your family, I'm sure, but perhaps not known to everyone else. Um, any more ideas? Cheese rolling. Cheese rolling. Yeah. Good guess, but no. I wish it was, but... This could go on for far too long. I've got other stuff to say. You're going to kick yourselves when you hear this. February the 2nd is Groundhog Day. Yeah? So, some of you, probably, many of you, might not have a clue what I'm talking about. But Groundhog Day is a tradition that I understand has come out of the States. And what happens on February the 2nd of every year, the groundhog emerges from its burrow. Or den. Have we got any groundhog experts? Burrows? Yeah, let's go with burrows. So it emerges at Adam. It emerges from its burrow. And what happens if it's cloudy? It means that spring's going to arrive early. If it's sunny, the groundhog sees his shadow. Uh, then it means that you're going to have winter weather for six more weeks. Okay, so that's the tradition uh, as it stands. And the only reason I'm aware of Groundhog Day is because there was a film called Groundhog Day. Okay, it's a really, really excellent film. But the premise of the film... Or the, kind of the, the story of the film is about a weatherman who goes to report uh, on Groundhog Day uh, and in, in this town. And what happens is that he finds he lives the same day over and over again. That's what the film is. It's reliving Groundhog Day over and over again. The reason I'm saying this is because this is the third week in a row where we've been starting from Philippians 2 and verse 1. When I said we were starting from verse 1, some people were looking at me like, are you sure? First one, we, we've kind of been there before. Can someone tell me what the date is today? No, no one. That's terrible. It's the 4th of June. It's not the 2nd of February, so I assure you this is not a Groundhog Day kind of situation. But there is a reason why we're starting here again this week. You see, for us as we're working our way through, we're taking it week by week, looking at it section, section at a time. But this is the letter. It was intended to be read all in one go, for people to hear all in one go. The reason why we're coming back to the beginning of chapter 2 is because actually what Paul's doing throughout this part of the letter is he's building on those early verses in chapter 2. So actually what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks and into this week is building and developing on what comes at the start. And like I mentioned last week, if we're not careful, what we're going to do, if we were to start from verse 19, which is where we're up to in this series, if we're not careful, it's like we're jumping in halfway through a conversation. And we really need to be able to understand what's come before. So let's pick up from chapter 2 and verse 1 for the third week in a row. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Although, uh, sorry, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we're going to jump to verse 19, which is where we're up to in this series. Paul continues, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He was near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am, the, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So in those first verses, in verses 1 to 11, just a refresher for us as, as to why I'm starting there again this morning. What Paul's doing is he's putting out a call for unity within the church. How the community, how the family of God should be with one another. They're not meant to do anything from selfish ambition. But they're meant to be humble, counting others as more significant than themselves. Looking not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's what that call is. I need you to be a church that is uh, full of humility and united together. How you're meant to treat one another and consider one another. And then he holds Jesus up as an example of humility. Uh, through, through Jesus coming to live among us. Through his life, his death and his resurrection. And he focuses really on Jesus' humility and on his obedience. On the fact that Jesus came in order to serve. He took on the role of, of a servant. And so he holds Jesus up as an example, but as I mentioned last week, it's not just an example, but it's also an invitation to become more like him. He's saying, look, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. I'm inviting you to become more like him. Because if you have that mind that Jesus had, then the whole thing of unity and humility that I'm calling you to, that's how you're going to work it out, by being more like Jesus. So now, this morning, towards the end of this section of this letter, what we would know as chapter 2, Paul mentions two specific individuals. He talks about two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now on the face of it, and this is kind of the place that I was in when I I sat down to prepare, as you read it, you may think, what are we to do with this? He's talking about two guys that he's wanting to send to the church. He's given a little bit of information there. 
And I can understand, you know, in the context for the Philippians as they're receiving the letter, this is something obviously that Paul would want them to be aware of. But what do we do with it today in Faversham? Can understand it in the context of the letter. Yeah, Paul's saying it's some information that Paul's wanting to share and some information that Paul's wanting to get across. But I think the question that we need to ask is why mention them here? Why is it at this point of the letter that he mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus and gives a little bit of an explanation as to what they're like? I think the reason that Paul mentions them here is because he's holding them up as examples. He's drawing our attention to them as examples. They exemplified the Christ-centred, gospel-focused life that Paul wanted the Philippians to have. This is the life that he spent the previous verses calling them to. Saying, this is the life I want you to live. Look to Jesus as your example. Here's an invitation to be like him. And now he's saying, look, I've got these two guys and I want, I want you to have a look at them because they exemplify what I'm calling you to as, calling you to as well. I want to give you a little insight now into how I prepare my sermons. This isn't something that I always do, but it's something I've done in the last couple of weeks. Jonathan, can we have the picture up? The slide up. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, let me just explain what's going on here. What I've done is I've printed out the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And then I've taken, I've got three different coloured pens. I've got a green, a red and a blue pen. And I've gone through and I've highlighted common themes or common threads that I can see coming through the letter. Just for me, I find it helpful to be like, okay, if there's something that's being repeated often, then it's because Paul's trying to get, or whoever's writing, trying to get something across. And that, the three I found, as I was preparing, I had three things. You probably won't be able to, to see from there, and please don't pay too much attention to my handwriting. It was quick scribbles. But green, the first thing I noticed in green, and I've circled, is that Jesus keeps appearing through Paul's writing. If you were to look through these verses, the name Jesus... Jesus Christ, the Lord, comes up time and time again through these verses. The second thing that I've circled in red is a real sense of, of affection in the way that he's writing. There's this personal nature to his writing, a sense of family. I put it like this, it's, it's relational, the way it was written. It's all about relationship. And then finally in blue, it talks about work and service and uh, what these guys have given themselves to. So we've got service or Mission. So they're the three things, the three, th the three threads uh, that I picked up on. Hopefully two of those words I use should be very familiar, being relational and mission. Hopefully the reason that they're familiar to you is because we belong to a family of churches called Relational Mission. As Mike's mentioned, Mike Betts heads it up, has apostolic oversight. So we've got the, the gathering next week over in Canterbury. That's part of Relational Mission. We've got me and Mike going on our elders retreat next week. That's Relational Mission. We've got Unite, the gathering of prayer together. That's Relational Mission. That's all part of the family that we're in. And it's this sense of, of being on mission together, serving together, making the gospel known together, but doing it in the context of family. We do it together in community with relationship with one another. Mike Betts, who we've said, who heads up the family of, of Relational Mission, he says it's, Relational Mission is less the title of an organisation, it's more a desire for a way of life. I think that's a really helpful thing. It's not just the name for an organisation, but it's a desire for a way of life, to be on mission together through relationship. The title for this morning that I was originally working with was Leading Like Jesus. That's what I was going to say, because if you look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, they were clearly leaders... They were clearly excellent 
leaders. But this Christ-centred life is one that we're, that we're all called to. And so with that sense of relational mission being a, a way of life, the title is now, rather than leading like Jesus, I want to call it living like Jesus. Because it's something that we're all called to. So this morning we're going to look back at these examples that Paul presents us with. We're going to look to Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus because they're examples, yes, to the church in Philippi, but they're examples to us as well. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up on these three colours that I had on the green, the blue and the red and those threads and we're going to work our way through those and pick out some things that I've observed through these guides. So this is the plan for the rest of the time today. You see, for Paul... For Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they had lived lives that were firstly Jesus-centred. They lived lives that secondly were relational. And thirdly, they lived lives that were on mission. But before we look at these guys, it's, a, it's probably helpful for us to just get a bit of background information on them. We first hear of Timothy in Acts 16. Timothy was a disciple. He was a follower, um, of, a believer of Jesus. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was also a believer. Uh, but of a Greek father who I understand from what I understand, wasn't a believer. So that's his background. And in Acts 16, Paul uh, gets Timothy to accompany him. He spots something in this young man, and he's like, he asks him to accompany him. And then from that point on, they become co-workers. They work together for the gospel. He's a young man. Uh, by the time that Paul's writing this letter, uh, Timothy's probably in his mid-30s. I like to consider that to still be a young man. Uh, and, and at this point, uh, sorry, and, and he's helped Paul to establish churches, so to, to, to help to build churches, but also to strengthen churches, to go into churches that are having a few problems and issues and going in and strengthening the churches. And they served together for, for over 10 years together. So you've got this relationship, an ongoing relationship between Paul and Timothy. And at this point, he's in Paul while he's in prison. Remember, that's the context that Paul's writing this letter in. So that's a, a very brief uh, overview of Timothy. Now Epaphroditus, he was connected with the Philippian church. He was part of the, the, the church there. He was part of the congregation there. And he had been sent by the Philippian church to Paul while Paul was in prison. He was sent, he was sent with a, a, a money gift, with a financial gift in order to help uh, finance Paul, in, in order to help provision for Paul. But somewhere along the way, so somewhere along this journey, he becomes unwell. We're not just talking about he was a little bit poorly. He was seriously unwell. As we read earlier, it says that he was ill to the, to the point where he nearly, nearly died. The news of this has reached the Philippians. And as you would understand, with him being a part of their, their church family, they were very concerned for him, for his welfare. And remember, we're, we're living in the time where you can't just get a quick update here. It's, it's letters that would take days, if not weeks, to arrive from time to time. So you've got the church there very concerned. But God in his mercy restores him back to health. Okay, but at the time that Paul is writing the letter, the church didn't yet know it. So we've got Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let's pick up on the first point. That these guys, they lived lives, uh, lived a life that is Jesus-centered. We're, as a church, we're doing an Alpha course at the minute. Alpha being an opportunity really to explore the Christian faith, to, to look at, I guess, the basics of Christianity. Uh, we have a video and discussion point and questions and that sort of thing. We've had a really excellent few weeks, really great evenings. And on Friday, the reason I'm saying this is because on Friday, the focus, or rather the question, they said it as questions. The question was this, was how can I have faith? That's what we were looking at. How can I have faith? And we were thinking about what faith is, how it's something that we, we can have. 
And on the video that went along with it, they asked a, a number of people from all different sorts of backgrounds the question of what is faith? And do you know what? It's hard to give a definition to what faith is. At least that's how it came across. It's hard to, to put it into words. But I think Hebrews 11 verse 1 gives a, a really good place for us to start when thinking about what faith is. Because in Hebrews 11.1 1, it says that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So faith is hope in the promises of God. And in defining faith as assurance or confidence, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that faith isn't some vague hope that's based on wishful thinking. That's not what faith is, but it's a settled confidence that something is going to come to pass. Okay? It's an assurance. It's a confidence. I think sometimes people can describe faith as almost being like a, a leap in, in the dark, a leap into the unknown, but it's a step or a jump that you've got to take. But it's not that. The kind of faith that the Bible talks about is a faith that is, uh, it's a confident trust in the eternal God who never changes. And it's a confident trust in the eternal God who has revealed himself in his word, but he's also revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's faith was fully rooted in the person and in the work of Jesus. In verse 16 that we were looking at last week, Paul speaks about looking forward to, to the day of Christ. So when Christ is going to return for his people, when Christ is going to come back, Paul is looking forward. He's got an assurance that something's going to come to pass, that Jesus is going to come back for his church. And because of that, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, Paul is full of hope. He is full of, he has assurance and he is confident throughout every circumstance in his life. Galatians 2.20, this is Paul writing again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in, uh, life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He lived his life full of faith in who Jesus was. And in what Jesus had done for him. We sang earlier uh, the, the, the words, Christ in me, my hope and my glory, my certainty. I thought that's a pretty nice kind of, um, I could imagine that's the sort of song that Paul would sing. Because that's what you get when you read his writings. That was, that was it. Christ, his hope and his glory and his certainty. And this faith that Paul has is clear throughout all of his writing. And I think that's why these verses that we're looking at in Philippians, they're full of Jesus. As I say, I was circling it. It was Jesus keeps making an appearance in Paul's writing. In verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. He has hope that comes from Jesus. The same verse, he speaks of seeking the interests of Jesus. That the, and, and he's speaking um, there about uh, about Timothy. This is something that Timothy was doing. He was seeking the interests of Jesus. So he was looking not to himself, but looking to Jesus and serving the interests of Jesus because that's where his faith was. So for Paul and for Timothy. In verse 24, he says, I trust in the Lord. Can we see it coming through again, this sense of faith and trust and assurance? Verse 29, when speaking of Epaphroditus, he says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy. In Christ, in Jesus, in faith in Jesus, there is joy to be found. And then again in verse 29, it says that Epaphroditus gave himself to the work of Christ. 
He was living with Jesus at the fore. With his eyes fixed on Jesus. He gave himself to the work of Christ. And in these few verses, we see Jesus in the context of, and also as the giver of hope, trust, joy, and purpose. That's why Jesus keeps coming up time and time again. Because for Paul and for Timothy and for Epaphroditus, what we see is they were guys that lived lived lives that were absolutely Jesus-centered. These are the lives, remember, these are the lives that we're called to as well. Not just talking about some guys that are interesting to know about. Paul's holding them up. These are examples to you. I want you to to be the same as these guys. I want you to, to live lives the same. And it works its way out. This faith, this certainty, this hope, this joy, this purpose that is found in Jesus works itself out in both the relational aspect, in the way that we are to to be with one another, but also in a missional sense, in that we have a purpose. God has called us to, to serve the gospel, to make the gospel known, to be his witnesses. So it works itself out both relationally and missionally. But it has to be with Jesus at the centre. So we've got a life that is Jesus-centred. Secondly, we've got a life that is relational. There was an interesting uh, Twitter thread in the week. I know this is something that Mike had picked up on as well. And someone had, had written a, a, few, a few tweets in a row. And really, if we were to summarise it, it, he was emphasising the fact that life is not a solo project. It's not something that we do by ourselves. When At the very beginning, when Jesus was with Adam before the fall... He said, God declared that it is not good for man to be alone. That something that, so God designed us to, to need other people. It designed us for community and, and to live not in isolation. Like I say, that, so life is not a solo project. And we can, and maybe this is a Western thing, we can have a very individualistic way of thinking where my faith is all about me and God. It's got nothing to do with anyone else. And we can fall into that and think, my faith is about me and about God. But this guy on Twitter, a man called Glenn Packian, he said that God, yes, God is the ultimate source, the source of joy and the ultimate source of identity. But he designed us to experience his joy, to experience his love through other people. So he's the source, but we're designed to experience that as well through others. We are communal beings we are social beings that's the way God made us so being a part of God's family is about being relational it involves relationship and community Jesus once said to his disciples he said that the world will know that you are my disciples how by the way that you love one another so that's something that Jesus intention for his people that there would be a love for one another. And I think it's something that's very clear throughout Paul's writing is his love and his affection for the church, for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 15:24. I could just spend ages just listening through examples of where it was, but Romans 15:24. This is Paul writing. He says, "I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while." Paul was on mission. He was on his way to Spain. But he wanted to stop and to spend some time with the Romans. Yes, because they were going to help resource him and and help him on his journey. But because he wanted to enjoy the journey. He wanted to enjoy the fellowship and relationship with them. Uh, To autumn time last year, 
was invited over to Beacon Church in Hermbay, one of the local relational mission churches, and to speak. They were doing a series on 1 Thessalonians. And so and as I read through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you could see that for Paul, so the same Paul, and for Silas, and Timothy, so we've got Timothy again, so for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, their love, affection, care, and concern for the church are absolutely clear to see. You just can't escape it in this letter. They use phrases like, you are our glory and joy, and we are affectionately desirous for you. They were separated by geography, but very much joined in heart. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get across. This life we live and this mission that we're on is a life that is a shared life together. Because that's the way that God called us to be. I think this is why Paul is so insistent on calling for unity and humility in the church. So coming back to Philippians 2. Why is it so important that there's unity and humility in the church? Because we're called to be in relationship with one another. Unity and harmony is a huge part of that. If you have disunity, then relationships are going to suffer and relationships are going to break down. I don't know about you, but when I read through these verses, and to be fair, I've probably I've read through it a few more times maybe than you have over this last week or so, just as I've come to prepare for it. But I find the example of Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus, in terms of their affection for one another, in terms of their affection for the church, which they demonstrate through their humility, which they demonstrate through their, their obedience, I find it really inspiring when I was reading through just the way that Paul is able to write about these guys and the way they related to one another. I found it inspiring. There's something that's really attractive about it. I've put here, I've said it's clear that these guys were more than work colleagues. There's something deeper than that. Here are some observations that I, that I made in these verses in Philippians. In verse 20, Paul says he has no one like Timothy. What he's saying there is that uh, they're, they're, they're like-minded. They're of one mind. They're of, or you could call it their, their kindred spirits. He's got no one else like him who kind of gets him just the way that, that Timothy does. They're, they're, it's like they're one um, uh, single-minded, sorry, this, this, of this same mind. And this, this like-mindedness, this being of one mind, this is the same thing that Paul that Paul has called the church to in verse 2, which we read earlier. He says, I want you to be of the same mind. You're to be of the same spirit. And now he's saying, do you know what? I've got no one like Timothy in terms of someone who's as like-minded as me. So what we're seeing is that he's matching the character that he's calling for in the church in verse 2. He's matching that character with the person or the model of it in Timothy. This is what I'm calling you to, church. Be like-minded. He's saying, look, in Timothy, I've got no one that's more like-minded. They're of the same mind. Timothy has a genuine concern for the believers. This isn't something that's artificial. It's not something that's false. It's not something that's faked or artificial. It was a genuine concern for the church. It's not that a case of him being able to stand up the front on a Sunday morning or, or whenever it would have been and portraying, you know... Uh, kind of being able to portray that he cares for the church. This was, um, and then, but his lifestyle not then backing it up. It's one thing to, to say it, but then for your lifestyle to back it up. But Paul's saying he's genuinely concerned for you. It's nothing superficial. This is something that is deep within him. He's burdened for the church. Such is his affection for them. He feels deeply for the welfare of the Philippians. This is something that Paul really wants to draw out about Timothy. And this is so important in the context 
of relationship. There's a genuine concern that Timothy has. Again, what Paul does with Timothy, he matches the character he's calling for in believers. He matches the character with Timothy. The example of Timothy, if we look in verse 4, Paul says, he says to everyone in the church, he says, look not only to your own interests. And then in verse 21, Paul says that Timothy is not like those who look to their own interests. Can you see the call for character? And it's modelled in Timothy. He doesn't look to his own interests, but he looks to the interests of, the, of others. He looks to the interests of Jesus and he puts them before his own. Because Paul is someone who sacrificed his own interests to seek the interests of Jesus and the interests of the Philippians. Can you see it being modelled, what Paul is calling for? A guy called Andrew Murray said that the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten. Why? Because he has received the spirit of Jesus, who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honour. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering and humility. This is the kind of man that Timothy was. With Jesus as his example, because of what Jesus has done for him, he lived that kind of life. He put the interests of Jesus and the Philippians before his own. He wasn't someone who was seeking praise and position for himself. He wasn't selfish in his relationships. He was selfless in his relationships. Because that's the example that he saw in Jesus. And that's the example that he's living out. So a little bit about Timothy there. Just some things I picked out. Now for Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, my brother, says Paul. That's how he addresses him. This is a close relationship. He loved him like a brother. And he'd been sent by the church to Paul. And now we're told that he's longing for the church who sent him. He's longing to be with his community. He's longing to be with his family. It's not that he's grudgingly being sent back by Paul. Such is his affection for the church. Such is the depth of the relationship there. He's longing to be with his family. This is the kind of person that Epaphroditus is, right? He nearly died. Let's not skim over this. He nearly died. He wasn't just a little bit ill. He nearly died. And yet, why is he distressed? He's distressed for the Philippians because they've heard that he's unwell and he wants them to know that he's okay. He's the one that nearly died. But his distress comes from the fact, I really need to let the church know that I'm okay. That word distressed is only found twice elsewhere in the Bible Both times it's used to describe Jesus in the garden before his arrest. It's that same sense of it's really affecting him. Because he loves the church and he wants them to know that he's okay. Such is the character of this man. His love for the church. His humility. Paul is sending him back home so that the church can rejoice at seeing him again. This is what the unity that Paul calls the church to, this is what it looks like in practice. This is why it's important for, us to, for Paul to write these words so we can see, yeah, this is what Paul's asking for, but this is what it looks like. I hope it inspires you. I know it's inspiring me. This is what humble service, having the same love, the same mind, which is theirs in Jesus, looks like. Just we'll quickly finish looking at the third thing. So we've looked at a life that is Jesus-centred, A life that is relational and finally a life on mission. I could have mentioned in the previous section when we were thinking about relationships. 
The father-son dynamic. Did you notice this that Paul uses to describe the relationship that he and Timothy has? He says he's like a son with his father. He says how Timothy has served with him in the gospel. Literally, he's saying that Timothy has he's slaved with me in the gospel. And this echoes what Paul says of Jesus in verses 5 to 11. Remember, Paul is saying that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And then he uses the same language to describe what he and Timothy are doing together as co-workers. He's saying we are, we are living, we are living lives that are serving the gospel. We are slaves to the gospel and making the gospel known. They had a mission to make Jesus known, to make the gospel known. So they, they were living slave together in the gospel. And Timothy, he's living his life in obedience to God while being apprenticed to Paul. So it's like the son learning the family trade from his father. That's the way that, that occupations and trades used to be learned. Fathers would observe their, uh, sons would observe their fathers working alongside. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, we're on mission together. We're slaves for the gospel. We're servants to making the gospel known, just as Jesus humbled himself and became like a servant. But we're, we're doing it in relationship again, like a father passing on the family trade to his son. Working together for the sake of the gospel, making Jesus known, making disciples, building families together. They were on mission together. They had purpose, which they found in Jesus. Timothy is someone who's proven his worth, is what Paul says. Timothy is someone who's proven his worth. He's, he's been battle-tested, in a sense, with Paul over all those years that they've been serving together. They've been battle-tested as they've worked side by side for the gospel. There's a consistency here. There's a substance to Timothy. He's not just all words. There's something about his life that proves that his life is, is Christ-centred. That he's proved that his life is about serving the gospel. It's proven. It's not up for question. And Paul holds it up as an example of, of why he should be received. Receive Timothy because he's proven himself over the years as we've been together on mission for the gospel. Something that really struck me. In Paul sending Timothy, you kind of think maybe Paul could have sent someone else. But you've got this father-son dynamic going on here in Paul sending Timothy he's given his best and I think that's a really excellent principle for us to get a hold of in terms of what it means to be on mission in terms of what it means to, to serve for the gospel and I've been struck by a number of examples in relational mission churches over the years where I've seen this in Canterbury I know a number of the families that were involved in the church plants in Leela and Helsinki were very dear friends to the, to the elders and the le leaders of the church but they said, actually, we want to give them as a blessing to the church. They were, in that sense, they were giving their best. Similar things with uh, the church, Revelation Church in, in London as well. A number of their elders have actually gone on to be involved in setting up other churches, and them and, and their families. It's this sense of actually, we're not going to hold on. We're actually, we, we want to bless the kingdom of God with the best that we have to offer. It's really, I thought that was an interesting observation to take out of it. So it's Timothy, on mission, but in relationship, as an example of, of what it is to be like Christ. And then Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, minister to Paul's needs. That's quite a lot of ways 
for him to be described by Paul. It's a long list. But I think what it tells us is that he was willing to serve. Whatever that meant, whatever that cost, he did what God called him to do. He was obedient to what God called him to do. Phil Moore, in his commentary on Philippians, says that when describing Epaphroditus' willingness to serve, Paul deliberately uses words that echo his teaching on sacrificial service that he mentions in in chapter 2, verse 17, which we were looking at last week. Effectively, what he's saying, Paul was talking about a life that's poured out as an offering in response to Jesus. So it's a response to Jesus, but it's also a visible reminder of Jesus in the sense that it, it reflects something of what Jesus has done. And that's the way that Epaphroditus was. He was willing to serve. He poured out his life as an offering to the church for the sake of the gospel. He was a guy, you just look at it and you say, whatever was needed to be done, he was willing to do it. He gave his life, everything that he could to serve the gospel. He lived his life working for Christ. To me, it seems like whatever he could do for God, whatever he could do for the sake of the gospel, he was going to do it. He nearly died in the process. But such was his obedience to the call of God on his life. He was, God, whatever it is, whatever it takes, however I can serve you, in whatever circumstance, whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to do it. And again, we've got that sacrificial service that we see when we look at what Paul writes about Jesus, don't we? Humbled himself, came in the form of a servant. That's what Epaphroditus was modelling through his mission, through his service of the gospel. He's not put his own well-being first, but he considered others before himself. He's been prepared to give everything in service to God. He's even been prepared to lay down his life. Both he and Timothy have followed the path that Paul's laid down in verses 1 to 11. Really, that's what I, want to, what I hope we take away this morning. Look back at verses 1 to 11. That's the path that Paul is calling us to. Both Epaphroditus and Timothy, they've followed that. They're examples of that. There's much that we can learn from them. Both of them are examples to us of what Christ-likeness looks like. Adam and the team, are you able to come up? We'll, we'll finish with a song. Uh, in a song. Just while the, the team are getting themselves ready. I'd like to read to you something that I think is um, maybe a bit of a modern-day example. This is coming from the, the Relational Mission book. Um, if you haven't yet got a copy of this, please come and see me and we'll make sure we get a copy to you. It really is excellent. And this is uh, about a lady called Nolda, Nolda Tippin. She lives in the Netherlands and she works um, in one of the big oil companies. And she's been learning how to follow Christ in, in her work. And I just think it's a, a, a modern day example that I hope will inspire you in the places where you are on a day-to-day basis and what it means to be an example of Jesus. She says, by imitating Christ, I'm learning to be courageous while at the same time showing humility. It's a common thing coming through here. This has proven invaluable in my workplace. I've confidently stepped into complex situations that many others have shied away from because it could affect their careers. I now have the assurance that even in the worst-case scenario that I lose my job, God would still provide in some way. I am now a team leader and I see it as one of my highest priorities to take care of the people I'm responsible for. God has not called me to this position to be only concerned about what goes on in the office. 
I have a privileged opportunity to be able to care for and support people in their families in their everyday lives. I want to see my team members grow and be fulfilled both professionally and personally. I'm constantly being surprised with new opportunities opening up where I can share the gospel. Within my company, there is still a shortage of technical female leaders who are mothers, and in order to promote more women to join, I often get asked to speak at career development and recruitment events. Normally, women take these opportunities to tell the stories of their battles and seem to especially enjoy elaborating on how they were born to be leaders. It is often a glorification of their individual efforts, but I am deliberately trying to break through this tradition by focusing on leadership as giving rather than taking. One example was at a large recruitment event where I was asked to tell a story about any significant event in my life. All the speakers before me had predictable glory stories. But to create a contrast, I told them of my experience in Nigeria as a modern version of the prodigal son. I was both the elder son who stayed at home and was arrogant, and the younger son who had taken all his gifts and run away from his father. Did not mention God, but just shaped my career story based on this parable. Once I was finished, you could hear a needle drop. Everyone was completely silent, and then the applause came. The feedback of the whole event was that most people found my hidden gospel message the most inspirational of the talks over the three days including that of the executive vice president. God must smile. Then Mike goes on to say, he says, what Nolda and many others are demonstrating is that following Christ applies to all of life. How we lead teams, or how we work, how we notice others, and how we speak can all witness to another kingdom and a greater king. I think that's a good modern day example of what these guys that we've been looking at this morning... I hope it inspires you. I hope it encourages you. Wherever you are, wherever you work, whatever groups you socialise in, allow God to use you in those places. Shall we stand? I'm just going to pray very quickly and then we're going to finish with a song.